Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Coffee and Open Source. I'm so glad you're back with us. We took a little bit of a break over the summer. I'm really excited for my guest today because we're going to be talking about all sorts of things open source and probably some things about tech in general. Uh, I want to introduce, I want to bring out my friend, Den. Den, do you want to say hello, introduce yourself? Hello, folks. I am uh, Den Delamarski. I'm a technical advisor at Microsoft, and I do a bunch of random stuff. That's how I describe my job. Doing a bunch of random stuff. Um, do you maybe want to talk about random stuff? I mean, so maybe a little bit of backstory of it. It's like, I think a lot of people know you as some from some other persona, right? Do you maybe want to talk about how you came to internet fame? If you think you're uh, how I came to internet fame. Man, I, I don't think I'm that internet famous. Sure. Okay. I, I, I don't know if I am. Uh, but I've been a product person at Microsoft. I was a software engineer. I, uh, you know, started my career way back and way back and, you know, depends on what uh, era you want to count, but it was about 2014 when I worked on Outlook desktop, then I worked on docs at Microsoft.com. So if you're reading technical documentation of Microsoft, thank you. Uh, it's all thanks to our con contributors. And uh, yeah, so I worked there for about five years, had a stint at AWS where I was a product person for some event-driven services. And I'm all back at Microsoft, which is exciting. Yeah. I I think there's I think a lot of people were very, very happy to, when you announced that you were coming back. Um, so one of the things that I like to talk about with folks uh, is kind of how they got started in tech. So a lot of people they've they've told me their origin stories where, you know, if you're in a certain um, you know, generation, maybe you got, you know, uh, magazines in the mail or CDs in the mail, and that's where you, how you write programs. Maybe it's some other people they got started with, you know, some web development things. Um, other people got into tech just by tinkering with things. Do you have like an origin story where you came across tech and you're like, yeah, this is the thing that I want to do the rest of my life? Every villain has an origin story. Uh, no, so my origin story is fairly, I, I want to say, uh, you know, very stereotypical of somebody in tech. So I grew up in Eastern Europe. Uh, I grew up in a family of educators. And so from early age, I'm talking six, seven years old, uh, we had a computer in our house. And I remember back in the day, just finding out that my dad has this uh, big, like chunk of metal that was a copy, a Soviet copy of an IBM computer. Right. So like back in the day, uh, there is all this industrial, you know, we take from you, you take from us. Uh, but essentially they copied an IBM personal computer. So we had that in our house. And at some point I just asked my dad, like, can I turn it on? I just I just want to turn it on. I don't <laughs> even know what I'm going to do with it. I have no idea what the thing does. Uh, so we turned it on and uh, it was something like. DOS. I think I think it was some variation of DOS. And uh, at, at that time, I started just typing random commands. And that's where I learned about things like if you type in dir, it will show you the list of folders that exist in that directory and the list of files and whatnot. So it was very fun. Then made a transition to a 486 computer. So that okay. was an Intel um, machine and that's when i actually started getting into coding so this is where uh I, at the time it was windows 98 and visual basic 6. Okay. and i just remember that it was so exciting the fact that i could drag and drop things on a form 
and then double click on the button and write code for it and just make it pop a text message or you know show a picture. And I, after that, I was hooked. After that, I would just not shut up about, I want this book that teaches me Visual Basic 6. I want this other book on Visual Basic 6. And I would just devour those books nonstop. Like I'm talking reading 600 page books in like a couple of months, just like doing exercise after exercise, not because like, I did not know what I'm doing, to be honest. I sure. just like, literally, I saw a code snippet in the book. I would copy paste it mentally, just write it out and see what happens. And yeah, that, that's kind of how it started. And since then it kind of stuck around and I knew that that's what I want to do. That's awesome. I think a lot of origin stories, at least from my experience talking with folks, it's all about this interest in understanding things, right? Like this natural, I guess, necessity or need or want to learn about something they don't quite understand, right? Um, I think that's a, a lot of it. I think one of the things that's also very interesting to me as well is just how you got to that point, right? Like, I love the idea of like, you know, can I just turn this on? I remember when we got our first computer, um, I was a sophomore in high school, uh, and like we got the computer on layaway, like it was this whole thing. And like, I took it apart day two. And uh, my dad was like, comes up and he's like, what is going on? I'm like, oh, I just want to like take it up, open up and see. He's like, you need to fix it right now. Like right, right now. I'm like, and I didn't know what I was doing, so I was plugging stuff in. I'm very surprised I didn't fry the motherboard, um, but it's just an, it was an, it was a great learning experience. Yeah. Uh, so that's the story. Yeah, that is the story. I'll, I'll tell you this. This is where exactly it's funny because that's where I see that this is very difficult path for a lot of people in tech. Well, it's it's the fact that when I had the 486. I had to upgrade to an AMD Athlon. It was a CPU. I vividly remember that. My dad got the parts. He handed me the boxes and he said, and it's now your turn to upgrade it. And if you fry it, you have no computer. And I had to figure out or read the instructions because it was pre-internet. Yeah. And I re read this, okay, like this is this type of socket and this is how you insert it. And you need one of those like static, anti-static straps. Oh, that, yeah. You know, yeah. The, yeah. So knew nothing about that. But somehow I did not fry it and it worked. So yeah. all was well. Like, so obviously I think you were probably in a similar boat. Like, I don't know if you were, were you like in high school, like during like the build your own internet like craze, like when every kid had to have an internet, like a our build your own computer phase, I'm sorry. Like where everybody built their own home PC for gaming Counter-Strike. Was that a thing when you were in high yes, school? Yes, I, yep. I think it's middle, middle school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. So, First strike was one game. Yep. yep. So I remember, like, my friend, like, he's got all this. He's pulled up some money. I don't I don't know how he made that much money, but he, he was able to pull up some money to, like, buy enough components for to build his own PC. And he's putting all these pieces together and, like, turns on. It's got a beep, it's got a beep but, like, nothing happens. Like, and so our friend's dad, who happened to be, I think he worked at IT in some particular world. We like literally like ran to his house with like this 400 pound like tower, like fix this. Yes. And he's like, he's messing around with it and all that stuff. And then he's like, you, you, you mess up the CMOS. And we're like, what is that? <laughs> like, what is the CMOS? Uh, and and at that point in time, I was like, okay, I don't know anything about this. I need to figure out more. 
because like I don't know what the CMOS is, I don't know what the BIOS is, so I I tried to get an understanding of all these different things, and that was really really fun for me. Um, and then I got started like doing web development, and I kind of was a web developer the rest of my life. Well, until this point, um, right? And I think one of the things that's very interesting is like, did you know right away that you wanted to like get into tech and like have it be your career? So you like went to college, went to university, and you're like, this is my thing. I'm going to do this. You know, when I was like, when I, when I first started dabbling in VB6, I did not really think about tech as a career. As a matter of sure. fact, I was always telling my parents, I'm going to be uh, a programmer and a biologist. So this is like the perfect combination for anyone's career. Like, you know, like that Aziz Ansari joke that goes about, you know, I want to do business in biology. Mine was programming yeah. and biology. Yeah. And so uh, that, that was the thing. But then kind of as I grew up, I was like, no, you know, I like tinkering video games. I got into modding uh, uh, Grand Theft Auto Vice City. Oh, yeah. Uh, that was oh, the game. Yeah. yeah. No, that's... Uh, yeah. And then you'd mod and you'd like adjust the gravity for the cars and they would start like flying off yeah. and getting like the colors and just the structure. And then I got on some 3D modeling where it's like, okay, well, I need to write the custom model for this car that's going to look like, I don't know, a Nissan GTR or something like that. And uh, so I, I did some of that. And I kind of realized that, you know what? Like, I actually like doing this. I find this is a creative outlet. Like some people paint, some people write poems, some people, you know, uh, sing. To me, this was coding, just yeah. writing code, just building things. And uh, my parents supported me through that, thankfully, because they saw the effect that it had on me that I was so keen on developing that, that aspect of my life. And uh, yeah, so it kind of like after that, it was a no-brainer for me when it came time to kind of go to college. And I was like, yeah, I want to do computer science. I, yeah. I want to do computer science because that's what I want to do for my career. And then uh, when I was in college, I wrote this blog post about if we all remember the Zune player. Yeah. Uh, so I found a way to download Zoom stuff. Uh, through the client without some kind of a, you know, the the guardrails that were put in place. So I wrote a blog post about it. And it was like, hey, here's how to do this. And then uh, my now good friend, Clint Rutkus, we all know Clint. Yep. Uh, and if you don't follow Clint, go to at Clint Rutkus. He drives power toys at Microsoft. Uh, he reached out and was like, hey, so like, why don't you work with us instead? And that was kind of the, he, he opened the door for my career. And after that, you know, I, I, uh, helped their team a little bit. And then I came back as an intern and they just kind of all spiraled out of control yeah. from there. But it just was, I, I knew it from, I'd say like, I, I knew that I wanted to make it a career, maybe my senior year of high school. Sure. Right. But even then I was just like, I don't know where, which company I'm going to work at. I don't yeah. know. Like I always wanted to work at Microsoft because I knew VB6 and Windows 98. Yep. But beyond that, like, who am I? Right. Yeah. Um, but here I am. No, it's it's funny that you bring that up because I had like, I don't know if your school did the same thing where like your senior year, you kind of wrote like your one year, five year and 10 year plan, which I think is absolutely ridiculous thinking back now. Right. Like who would ever, right. like what high school kid knows what they're doing in 10 minutes, let alone 10 years. Um, and I remember I specifically wrote like working at Microsoft. I'm from like, I'm from the area, right? I'm from Washington State. So working at Microsoft was like a big deal. 
like because you know right. in the it was in your face your entire you know adolescent life and then when i started working there i was like oh like cuz i always had this feeling like i wasn't good enough to work at microsoft and then yep. when i started Wait. working there i was like oh like there are great people and there are people that aren't so great like every other job and there are people who love their job and there's people who just clock in clock out uh, and it's it's interesting i think every tech company is like that right where like there's all this mystique and then once you're inside you're like oh the sausage making process is the same no matter where you are um, right which right. i think is and, and pretty people, interesting yeah exactly people think that there's some big magic happening behind the scenes yeah. when the reality is just like it's people like you and i that are writing code they're collaborating yeah. they're building things they're shipping things they're learning it's it's kind of like it's it's not as secret as people think yeah it's very true it's very true like i think the the one of the things that's kind of made these this thought of like okay like working at a tech company is almost impossible you have to like no big o notation and you have to like no red black trees and like all this like high computer science thing op things is this concept of like open source and how all these tech companies now adopt it and you don't need well i guess that's not fair you like it's not necessary for you to go down a traditional computer science path to get into a big big tech yes. career anymore. Uh, Absolutely. So one of the things I'd like to chat with you about is, you know, do you have uh, like a a notion of what your open source journey where it started? Like it was, I was working on a project and I I had to rely on some open source technology, or was it very much like, hey, I see that all this code is out here, like let me play around with it. Yeah, so my open source journey started back in the day of CodePlex, yep. which was pre-GitHub. Yep. And uh, the, how I got brought into that was, again, shout out Clint Rutkus. Uh, Clint managed a project. It was a Coding for Fun toolkit mm -hmm. at the time. Yep. Uh, and I was just getting into uh, building things for fun for myself with Windows Phone because that was the new thing yeah. back in, I want to say, like 2009, something like that. Um, and I remember because I, I kind of encountered the problem of, well, the controls that I needed from the richness of WPF applications, Windows Presentation Foundation, for those that don't know, uh, it was lacking. Like I just could not find the right, like a date picker or something that would allow me to switch the calendar view. Yep. And I was like, okay, this, this seems kind of ridiculous that we don't have that. Yeah. And then I started searching for it and I ran into Coding for Fun Toolkit on CodePlex. And that offered all those tools. Like there's a date picker control, there's a calendar control, there's kind of the, the color picker. I was like, this is exactly what I want. Mm -hmm. And then when I started kind of fiddling with it, I also clicked with me, like, well, I don't like this behavior. I'm gonna go tweak it. And by virtue of me having access to the source code, I could just tweak it and recompile it and just have it run yep. right there. And it feels like, okay, this is the way to do it. And since then, all the projects that I built personally, I've released as open source because I was like, well, what if somebody else yep. will be in my shoes? Like as I was with that toolkit where they are like, hey, this is a great tool that solves the scenario, but I want to tweak it just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Clone the code, tweak it or whatever you want. I think that's pretty spot on. I think, you know, I think one of the things that's very interesting about open source is this idea of like, oh, like maybe I have the same problem, maybe other people have the same problem as me. So I might as well figure out a way for people that run into the same situation. I talk about this a lot when I talk about things like Presence Lite, this, this open source tool that I built. Yep. The reason why I built it is because I wanted this experience 
And then I was like, oh, probably other people like this. And then it turns into this thing. And now it's now people love it. I think it's one of those things, too, where when you're out looking for things, too, like the first thing that I when I have an idea of like, oh, this might be a cool app is like I start frantically searching on GitHub if it exists or not. Right. Because I have this this belief and that's probably not fair that all of like the really like like the not very complex ideas that you could come up with, like, oh, this is a great idea. Like, it's already been done, right? It might not have mm-hmm. gotten as much traction or it might didn't get all the way there or whatever, but somebody started most ideas unless you're yes. inventing a new technology or something like that or a new product comes out and you need to interface with it. But for the most part, like, most of the things that common technologists probably need or want as a part of their day, it's already been done. And it's just ways of finding them or ways to amplify them if they don't if they aren't being used very heavily, mm-hmm. um, which I think is really really important. I think that leads to something I'd like to talk with you about because you were a consumer and a contributor to a, a fairly well known like open source initiative, right? Like the whole docs.microsoft.com thing. Sure. Right. <laughs> and uh, so I, I'm curious to know like what your experience was like. If you can, I don't know if you can or if you're allowed to or not, talk about maybe the origin for, hey, let's have all of our docs open source. Oh, and let's have this entire platform that takes all of this content in static files and turn it into something meaningful. Yeah, so I, I don't think I, I – well, first of all, I want to make it clear that I cannot take credit for any of this stuff because well, the, 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 idea... the face of it though. So you can take all the credit oh, for it. I, I was the – Unofficial self-assigned face, if you will. Sure. Uh, but the origin came from uh, so back in the day, I worked with Dan Fernandez. Yep. Shout out Dan at Daniel Fe on Twitter, uh, and that was the idea where we looked at the documentation, and the team then realized that prior to Docs, Microsoft is using a proprietary lockdown system that if you wanted to write docs, you'd have to write these cumbersome XML files, which sure. was, you know, uh, as we all know, XML is the format to write documentation in. It's true. Uh, it's and true. Uh, so we wrote XML files and that was very cumbersome and it took like weeks, if not months sometimes to write and publish docs. Right? It's a very, very cumbersome process. So this is where, because of the existence of GitHub, because of the existence of Markdown, it all kind of the stars aligned at the right time and folks realized that, hey, maybe we should do this the same way that open source projects do, right? Because the the reality is when we think about great ideas, I also like to think of it as an alignment of resources that become available yes. at that particular time, right? Because if you know um, the iPhone did not exist, uh, Angry Birds would not exist either, right? Or like in that format that it, it does, like or you know uh, QR code trackers or whatever else you name it. Uh, so it so happened that at the time when this project kind of was in the early nascent stages, a uh, GitHub existed that was very well matured, mm-hmm. and then uh, Markdown as a format existed, and then folks on the team uh, way above me realized that sure. hey, like this is the future and it's very straightforward, right? Like if I want to write markdown files, I can just go to GitHub, create a pull request, fix a markdown file, fix a typo, add an image, add a sentence and be done with it. Yep. That's that's it, that's the process. 
And that kind of, I think it, you know, in, in retrospect, it, it seems obvious because you can think of it sure. as like, well, of course that makes sense. Yeah. But back in the day, it's like, yeah, you know, how many times are you going to reinvent the CMS? Right? As, some, like, as somebody how, like, who has done lots of CMS work in their career, yeah, like a right. lot of people want to reinvent the CMS, right? That's the sad thing. Right. Exactly. But this is where the team decided at the time that the CMS is not the right approach. Yep. And it's the right approach is to make it kind of like a static site, which, hey, little known fact, Docs is a static site. Like a lot of people don't realize that we use a tool called DocFX behind the yep. scenes, which I know, Isaac, you called it out yesterday in one of your tweets. But yeah, we use DocFX, which is DocFX. All it does, is it converts Markdown into HTML files and in some cases, it adds a bunch of rich stuff like, you know, .NET REPL. Uh, shout out to Scott Hanselman's team and the .NET team uh, for building that out. But they plug that in, and it's a static. It's HTML that sits behind the CDN, right? Like yeah. that's that's the magic. Like, yeah, sure. There's a lot of SRE related stuff that goes on to make sure that the site is up and available. And there's kind of like, it's a huge team effort. But at the end of the day, it's a static site. Yep. Yeah, it's it's it was a fun project to work on, and it was a fun project to work on from its inception because, you know, it's a lot of the detailed stuff was kind of hidden from the public eye, but we went through a lot of the migration work as an example because yeah. one of the principles that uh, we established at the time was that look, if we're gonna move to a new system, we're not gonna lose any content. We're not gonna create a a system by which the .NET API now disappears. Yes. Or now all the links to .NET API that exist in Visual Studio documentation become broken. Yep. So there's a huge effort to both convert, redirect, find out where those bad links are. So it, it took years to get to a state where we were comfortable and saying, okay, this is good. Mm -hmm. But it is it, it, it turned out pretty good yeah. from uh, what I can see and what I can tell from the community. And we've been... So lucky. And this is where, again, I want to emphasize that when we talk about projects of the scale, it's never just one person. Sure. It's never just one team. Our contributors, our open source contributors that came from outside Microsoft yeah. were instrumental to the success of the, the, the docs ecosystem. Like We have people that help us make better docs. They write entire articles. Yeah. They update screenshots. Right? Like People from outside Microsoft contribute. And we are so so fortunate to be able to work with them. And I think that's the benefit of open source is you bring people together into a community, you work together to figure out the right approach. And it's not one of those like top down, you know, we tell you how to do things. Yeah. And I think, you know, full disclosure, like my first introduction to open source was writing docs for docs.microsoft.com, helping out Myra Wenzel and Scott Addy and all those folks over on the .NET team, like migrate from the old system to the new system, right? Like it, it, we're talking about thousands of pages and like, yes. unfortunately, automation doesn't work in some cases. So you have to actually go through a lot of stuff. And that was kind of where I really understood the, the value of contribution, right? Because, yes. you know, for, you know, for folks that don't know, like the, the docs team at Microsoft isn't very big. Like the content developer team, like the people who write docs for Microsoft, it's not as big as you think. So it's, it's important for people, if they feel like they can contribute in a way, please do, um, because it's, it's a lot. It's a lot to take on. And I think, you know, one of the things that you mentioned uh, is really interesting is you, like, there was, it, 
you didn't just make the process open source, but then you opened it up for contribution, which I mean, I don't, I can't think of another large tech company that has gone down that path. Right. And I might, yeah, yeah like, like there's not a lot of, I, and look, I don't, if, if Google does this, if Amazon does this, if Facebook or all the other huge tech companies, if they have some contribution section to their docs, I, and I'm not aware of, I apologize, but it's not as openly known or transparent as the docs process. So I think, you know, what was the decision to like, we understand that there is this huge potential for community contribution and community feedback loop. Like let's take advantage of it instead of just having outward content only. Yeah. Well, I mean, it all starts from just asking the question, who you're serving. You are serving your customers. Like as Microsoft, who's our customer? Yep. It's people that use Windows to build applications. It's people that build websites on Azure. Mm -hmm. They are the experts, right? Like the, the you know mm -hmm. exactly how you're using the API. You know exactly mm -hmm. how you're going to call that specific HTTP endpoint. Yep. And you're going to be the, also the person that can realize and say, this does not work the way you described. Because full disclosure, when we work at any big company, mm -hmm. like insert company here and there's a blank space, you can put any company, you always work in this little bubble. This is true. Right? You work in the bubble where you think that like this things works, these things work on my machine because yeah. you know I tried it, but like you're in a corporate environment where you have the all set up and provisioned for you, you have the all the policies in place, yeah. so it's easy and it works. And you write the doc and say, Hey. Follow these simple five steps, and then you're going to be good on your way. Yep. And then you get outside the building, and you realize that somebody that works in the federal government might have a completely different set of constraints, and yes. your API does not work. Yes. Right? How are you going to find that out? There is no way to find that out unless you either, one, have a very frequent feedback loop with those customers, mm -hmm. which at scale is hard because you have millions of customers, or you can open up your docs and say, hey, if something ever breaks or you feel is like incorrect or incomplete, tell us. Just open a GitHub issue. Again, it's as simple as opening it. And I know that I'm using very reductively like the word simple. Yeah. But it's a matter of go to a GitHub issue and say, hey, this doesn't work. Here's some steps to reproduce. Or maybe you found out that you know we misspelled an API endpoint or parameter. And then you can literally open a pull request and say fix typo. Yeah. I mean, like I think it's about reducing friction right? Like yes. you don't want, like, obviously like saying things like simple and things that's not fair. But I think one of the things that's really important to call out is that it's bringing the bar to a level where it, there it's, it's as low as possible for most people. Like still, like, yes. let's be completely tr realistic. There are some people that the bar is still too high, right? Yes. And it's about taking those people and trying to help them get to that level. Right. You know, whether they it, there, there's lots of reasons why people don't like you can be in software for 30 years and not want to do any of this. Right. When I talk about open yeah, source, and that's OK. But if you want to and you feel like you're struggling getting that first step, making the making the barrier to entry as low as possible is is the goal, is the job. Um, and, yes. I, and I think, yes, that's the underlying reason why everybody at every company does what they do when it's community, community in quotes oriented, right? It's about reducing the friction to use the tools that company produces. Yes. 
I love that idea that you just mentioned where it's it can be your first step towards open source, right? Yeah. Because I know for myself, if I put myself like back in the day in my shoes in college or middle school, if somebody told me like, oh, go contribute to open source, I'd be so intimidated I would not touch yeah. a computer. Yeah. Because it's scary. I mean, old like, you know, to me, when I think of contribution to open source, the first thing that pops to mind is like, oh, I'll have to go and contribute something to the Linux kernel. Yeah, exactly. Or, right. Right. Exactly. It's like, which is scary. It's like, I know nothing about kernel development. Yeah. And even if I did, it's like, okay, well, am I thinking about this the right way? There's all these expert people that mm -hmm. know way more than I do. Am I right? Like you're overthinking it versus when you have something as simple as documentation. And again, simple in quotes here because it's not really simple, but the idea where you can start and you can say, hey, I will go to the .NET docs and open an issue and work with Myra to make sure that we discuss, uh, hey, like, is how do I make sure that folks that are new to .NET can use this API properly, yes. right? Like, because I was new, I didn't understand this. Maybe we can phrase this better. Yep. That is a fantastic contribution. And this is where I want to emphasize that contributions to open source documentation are just as valuable, if not more valuable and important than contributions to code. I Because people yeah. mistake that, right? They think that's like open source is only code. It's not. Yeah. Documentation, open source is just as valuable. I have this conversation with people all the time. Like one of the things that I, I do, I'm on the, the marketing committee for the .NET Foundation. And I have this program that we created called Project Spotlight, where we basically, we call out projects in the .NET Foundation that exists that people should, if they don't know about it, it's, it's a way to amplify the work of great community contributors. And the first thing that I always say is, hey, contributor, person who writes code in their free time for some great open source project in the .NET community, would you like people to help write your docs for you? And the answer is always yes, right? Because the documentation, yep. like that work never ends. It never ends. It, it really never does, no. no. And it's one of those your things. Your product changes. Yeah, and... All you have to do is be patient to write docs, right? Because, and, you know, I don't want to stereotype, but one thing developers really lack as a, a general thing is patience, right? We get very, we're very impatient people and that's, that's probably yes. not fair, but it's pretty true. I know I am. Yeah. I am, so, right? Like if somebody told me like docs, I like, I, I want to write code. Exactly. Or you want to just get your problem solved and then the docs come later. And, I, and whenever somebody talks about contributing to open source, I'm like, well, is there a technology that you like and that you use? Is there a repo out there? And people don't think that writing issues is contributing. Having discussions in GitHub is contributing. Having conversations on different channels, whether it's Twitter or Stack Overflow, that's open source contribution. It comes in all different flavors. The problem, the problem starts when you start to treat open source as a service instead of yes. instead of some uh, a collaboration mechanism between other developers. I'm guilty of it. I was that, you know, to quote a friend, backroom developer, dark matter developer who would literally download NuGet packages or download GitHub things and and never contribute back because I didn't care. And then I realized, right, that, you know, probably later than I should have that it's all, this is free this is free time work for people. And people have this passion to solve problems. And the least that I can do is help in any way I can. Does that mean that I'm going to, using your canonical example, going to go into the Linux kernel and start 
writing like terrible C code or whatever the whatever that whatever the kernel's written in. I don't, I don't even know. That's how far off from that particular stuff I am. But if I have interest, I can at least try to contribute. And look, some open source projects they they put up a pretty high barrier for contribution by choice, and right. that's okay. Right. That's okay. Like maybe they don't want people just opening up issues and pull requests constantly because it's it's too much noise. Maybe they have uh, you know a particular roadmap for how they want to do things. So it's really important to, to point out is that open source means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, and how can all of those people's needs be satisfied? Because at the end of the day, we're all just trying to solve problems, right? Whether it's problems for yes. a company we work for, uh, solving problems for a personal project, solving problems because your wife is asking to back up her photos and she doesn't want to use Google Photos anymore. Like, all of these things. Like, And it's about finding the avenues that are going to lead you to the most success, right? And if you're not enjoying it, you don't have to be there. That's okay. But if you right. if you like you want to be there, please do. Yes, uh, 100%. This is where I also feel like there's this sometimes unhealthy emphasis on, you know, we, we see open source as a contribution avenue. It's an avenue for people to kind of, you know, get their feet wet and get started. And that's great. But it's also not an obligation. Mm -hmm. You don't need to, like, you know, it, it certainly can help your career to be an active contributor to open source. It brings you visibility, yes. but that's not the foundation, nope. right? It's not It's not going to be the, the, well, okay, if your GitHub, you know, the tile, uh, you know, on your profile shows you that you don't have those green squares for every oh, day, yeah. then you're a failure. Absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. No, that contributions is about you deciding that you have the time, you have the means, you have the resources to do it. Yep. And if you don't have those, that's okay. You know, I don't expect somebody that is an engineer with three kids that has to worry about a lot of other things to spend time contributing to open source in their free time. I mean, right? yeah, like, it's, I don't think it's, it's definitely not fair. I think the expectation that we need to put on people in tech in general is that everybody lives their life differently. I mean, right. look, I got, I got a wife, I got two kids. If they didn't exist for whatever reason, I probably wouldn't be where I am right now, but that's a whole different thing. But if I was, I, who knows what I would want to do in my free time. Maybe I want to write code 18 hours a day, right? Right. Maybe I don't, but it also like the biggest thing is it's about understanding that behind every piece of tech that you consume, there's a person or set of people behind it. Yes. And, yep. and once you realize that you have to understand that most of these people are doing it for themselves and for you at the same time. Because it, I, I say this to people a lot too. If you're writing open source and you're not getting any, like if you're writing anything and you're not getting enjoyment or money out of it, like do something else, right? Like if you're- My, yeah. <laughs> my favorite emails is I, it's funny, I got this the other day. So I have this open source project. So I, I used to have a uh, Nest camera. Mm -hmm that I got annoyed by the fact that I could not store the recording locally. It always goes to the cloud. Yep. It's like, all right, well, I'll figure out how to do this. I wrote this tool. It's on uh, GitHub. It's called Foggy Cam from because I like the San Francisco fog and I like cameras. So combining the two. Uh, and 
all it is. It, it really just kind of it talks to the kind of the Nest protocol, the API. You authenticate with your own credentials, and it just copies your own video stream locally. And a project that I again did in my free time. I kind of maintain it on and off uh, when I have time again because it's kind of the the biggest resource that right now we have. Yep. Uh, and it is. I got an email the other day where somebody was like, oh, I haven't seen an update to this tool in the past like X months. If you're not going to update it, you shouldn't bother building it. And I was okay. like, oh, OK. Well, first of all, I built it for me. Yeah. Right? Like you. I did not build it as like it's not a product. I like I don't market it. I don't sell it. I don't support yeah. it in the way that you can support any commercial product. I built it for me because I like doing this stuff. And I had a problem. If you can, it's open source. You can go to GitHub mm -hmm. and Isaac, I said you posted a link. So go there, take the code, modify it, yeah. tweak it, do whatever you want with it, right? Like it's it, it's it, it's open. Yeah. And this is to me, it's fascinating to see the reaction of like, well, if you know, if you're not gonna maintain it, don't bother building it. It's like, well, my point was not to make it some super successful mega project. Yep. It's like I did it because it's fun. Right, yeah. um, and I I find it fun that 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 mentality exists in the open source community sometimes. Where it's like, well, the author should be spending all their time mm -hmm. maintaining this because I have this issue. Yeah. No, okay, you have that issue, you can go fix it. That's why it's open source. Yeah, I was so it's funny that you bring up this this idea of like you can contribute or you can take it and do whatever you want with it. Recently, I have started to find that there are a lot of forks. Of projects that I have been aware of that are old, that are no longer yeah. maintained, that are very well maintained by their forks. Yeah. And uh, I came across this the other day, and I was like, "Oh, like that's an interesting thing." Because somebody said it's not wasn't a transfer of maintainership. Like the repo didn't right. switch hands. Somebody was like, "Look, I'm not liking where this is going, or I think I can contribute in a way that's outside the scope of what the person had in mind." So I'm going to go off and do my own thing. Yes. And that creates another community, right? I'd imagine there's a lot of, I've seen it where somebody will put in the readme, I don't maintain this anymore. Look at this fork. And it's somebody else's fork. And it's, that, that is a, a crazy thing to think about where it's, hey, you built something like, let's take your foggy cam thing, for instance, right? Like maybe somebody wants to not just add uh, like maybe they want to do other things with it. Maybe they want to be able to build a web wrapper for it or, or yep. whatever. Right. Like you don't want to do that probably, but somebody else might want to. And there's this opportunity for people to contribute in that way too, where it's kind of starting not at step zero of a project, but like a step five. Right. Yes. Because that's yep. that's exciting too for people. Because a lot of people have a hard time just starting with their ideas, right? But 100%. but taking an existing yeah. idea and finding ways to contribute, like the best feeling that I have is like for my silly little open source projects. Like people, like I get pull requests. I'm like, what? Yeah. You mean you spent time out of your day to like update my silly little thing? Like that's awesome. Thank you so much. Um, Absolutely. And sometimes I have to tell people like that's not really. I can't like. One thing that I, I imagine you probably get with your open source projects is somebody will come in and say, oh, you're probably doing this wrong. Let's do it this way. And mm -hmm. the wrong way is a way that I don't know how to write code. And it's like, right. you know, and I'm like, okay, I, I love your contribution. Thank you so much. 
but I can't take this PR because I can't maintain your code and you're going to disappear. Right. Right. No, this is, this is such a, again, I think it's a familiar problem for a lot of open source maintainers period, because there's this misalignment of understanding why certain things are built and how they're built. Right. If you're building something for yourself, like I'm not, I'm not territorial at all about my open source projects. If you want to take it and rebrand it and then use the code and just drop in a reference and say, Hey, this came from foggy cam. Great. Yeah. By all means, please do that. Right. It's like, I don't care. Uh, but at the same time, it's like the expectation is, yeah, look, I have other responsibilities. I have to do things in my day-to-day job and after work, I have a family that I can just say, Hey, I'm going to be spending 24 seven, just maintaining this project. And this is that, I don't want to call it entitlement, but it's probably a little bit of that entitlement, right. Where you have that, uh, you know, well, I have this problem. I found this bug for my scenario. You have to go fix it now because it's broken. Yep. Like, no, no, no. It's broken for you. I get it that it's a problem. I know. But again, this is a product that I'm not getting paid for. I don't work in it during the day. Mm-hmm. And I'll get to it when I get to it. Yep. Right? It's like, it, 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 it's simple as that. Now, the other side of this too is when you start running into those scenarios where things break under very specific circumstances oh, for yeah. those environments, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of blown out of proportion because now you're like, oh, this is a big problem. Your product sucks and this is not working. Yep. And it's like, yeah, I mean, it, it's not because one, this is not designed for it. Yep. And two, it's because, uh, you know, you're, you're one person that reports this issue. Mm-hmm. It's not a global problem. Right. Like there, there's a lot of these things that I think in open source, it's very, very important to emphasize that it's not just about, uh, you know, when, when somebody releases a product as open source, that does not imply that now you're open to tell them what to do, how to do, because yep. it's a problem for you personally. Mm-hmm. This is why I always like my de facto response when anybody opens up an issue is I look at the issue. I think about I think for about 15 seconds. How much work would this issue be? And do I have the means to do Mm -hmm. it? And if the answer is, I can't get this done in an hour, I say, I'll look into it, but I would love a contribution. So please open a PR. And usually people disappear. Because again, it's back to that concept I talked about earlier about open source as a service, right? Like some people, they just want to consume and that's okay. But it doesn't get, you don't get to just consume but also provide unsolicited feedback without wanting to contribute, right? Right. Um, and even like and when I say contribute, like something as simple as like, can we get? Can we have a conversation about what you want from this? Maybe I can take yeah, on that work. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like I'm not expecting a PR, but if you're going to complain about something not working, it reduces my interest in helping, right, as a, right, as a contributor. Right, Because there's other things I'd rather do. Um Plus, I don't know if you have the same thing, but I have ADHD, so like I'm on to the next thing every single time, like even if it's done, like like in software's never done, because there's always going to be bugs, there's always going to be things, uh, but my interest in maintaining something, especially when I no longer really use it at scale, is uh, is challenging for me, so I'm always looking for like the new shiny object, and forgetting that a lot of people want my shiny object. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there, there's struggles all around. Um, so I think we just ranted about 
open source maintainership problems for like 20 minutes, I'd like to talk a little bit about, you know, there are a few things that outside of writing code and writing docs that people do to further enable the open source community. Like some people, Mm -hmm. they write blogs, some people do podcasts and you do both of those things. So, you know, why, why do you want, or not want, that's not fair. Why do you feel this need or this, or this urge to be out there and talk with the community in a way that's valuable, not just for yourself, but for others? So I'll start with the blog. So we'll talk about the blog and the podcast. So my blog, den.dev, uh, very easy to, to go to. Uh, I, I started the blog because I got inspired by Jeff Atwood. So the co-founder of Stack Overflow, uh, Jeff had this website called Coding Horror, mm-hmm. which is his own blog, where he very informally talked about a lot of the things that he worked on, how he made career decisions, building a computer. uh, And it was just so fun to read. Like I would spend hours a day just going through the archive, just going through the website and be like, oh, what does Jeff think about this? This is this, right? And again, it was one of the few blogs that I had the pleasure of just, you know, sometimes you have blogs that you have to, you know, Google or Google would Bing for an issue. Uh, and you would land on somebody's blog page and be like, okay, this solves my issue. Coding Horror was one of the blogs where you could literally just browse it through the days. And I kind of looked at that and said, hey, it's this is interesting. I wonder if I can do something similar. So I started my own blog. And again, I would just blog about stuff that I would explore, yeah. right? Like the Xbox Live API, how does that work? I'll put it together. Or uh, the Zune API at the time. How does it work? I'll put it together. You know, I had my first internship. I'll document it. And it was kind of pointless. I didn't like I to be clear, I did not start the blog with the intent of like, I'm gonna monetize this and make thousands of dollars a month yep. from it. It was never the goal. Yep. It was just more of a fun thing that I started for myself. And it just kind of after that, I realized that I would see folks come in for specific issues that oh. I had this exact same problem with setting up a a ubiquity edge router to be as a switch. And you wrote this, you know, one blog post that tells how to do this. And it solved my problem. And I was like, oh, that's great, right? Because I thought I'm the only one that had this problem. Apparently not. Or, you know, a couple of months ago, I I had an old camera. Like it's actually behind me, but a Nikon D3100. And that camera does not have a clean HDMI output. Sure. So uh, if you would connect it to something like CamLink or to a capture card, it shows you all that, like the the photo information about ISO and F. Yeah. And so I wrote a blog post of like, you know, how do you actually connect it and clean up that to make sure that it looks decent if you want to stream with that camera? Mm-hmm. Because I had that problem. I have an yeah. old camera. I did not want to spend a bunch of money on a new camera. And that post right now in the past couple of months is the most popular post on my blog. Yeah. Go figure, right? Like I did not plan for this. It's not a big plan that I had for, you know, how to promote. Like, no, it all came organic, just sharing the experiences. And that kind of like my blog has always been the amalgamation of personal experiences and things that I just enjoy doing, things that I do, things that are on my mind. And uh, I found that people find it useful too sometimes. And the best thing is when I will actually search for an issue online 
and then stumble across my own blog yeah. post from 2012 and I'd be like, I I knew it. Yeah. I, yeah. Right? Well, the best thing. People will say, like, don't blog, don't blog for anybody but yourself in the future, right? Like that's pretty much what I do. There's there's yeah. something to that, right? Um like there's there are a handful of things that I have probably I forget a lot. And I'll search yeah. and I'll search on the internet and it'll go back to a Stack Overflow post that I posted. Yes. And somebody answered yes. it 15 years ago, whatever, right? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I should probably like bookmark that. It's like, I don't know, something like how to do anonymous types in link or something like that. Like something that you don't know right. the syntax forever, but it is what it is. Uh, so right. it's one of those things where I think especially as people get more and more saturated with, with content – you tend to forget things like simple things that you do every day. You forget them yes. more and more often. So it's one of those things. It's not just tech too. Like, you know, how do I do this? Like, like one of the things that I've started to think about is like doing a podcast about dealing with a small child and like for, and mm-hmm. trying to figure out like, what do you do with a small child? And like thinking about it from like an engineer's perspective, like how do you solve a problem with your child, but from a tech perspective? Yes. Um, yeah. And I, I've been thinking about this and I'm just like, I should probably just do it. But I think that the, the meta point is there is an opportunity for you to always be learning, even if it's from yourself in the past. Yes. Actually, that's a very good point because that's another thing that I noticed when I write, you know, in your head, you solve a problem mm-hmm. or you write some code, you test an API and you're like, yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah. But then when you start writing it out, you start realizing, okay, I have a blind spot where like, actually, if I would think back to how I did it, I missed this one part. Let me write it out. Yeah. So it helps me clarify my thought and outline, like imagine the person reading your blog post knows nothing about what you're doing. Yeah. They have zero context. They have no knowledge. They're reading this as the first thing. How would you give them that max context? Yeah. And this is, I think, where it, like, it helps me refine my thought. So the blog post was, yeah, like you said, it's, it's blog for myself. And it so happens that by proxy, it helps some people. And that's great. But at the end of the day, if somebody comes to me and says, you know, your blog sucks, and like, yeah, it probably does. And that's okay. I'm, I'm totally fine with it. I mean, there's um, nothing wrong with the blog sucking. Like, as long as you think that it is good, like, or provides yeah. value. Like, I mean, I don't know if you're like this. But I feed off – like I can take about 75,000 negative pieces of feedback and I get one and it's oh, yeah. worth it every single time. Yeah. All you need is, I, I, you need I do is the not one. Care. Yeah. I, I do not care about negative feedback because I get a lot of it on a lot of things. There's a difference between constructive feedback, right? With somebody can tell you that, hey, your writing here was unclear. Can you improve that? And I was like, that actually makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. This is unclear. Let me go fix it versus somebody is like – you should delete your entire blog. Like, all right. Well, like, yeah, I don't I care don't, about that. I don't I, know I, about that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a very thick skin in that regard. But yeah, blog, very fun, personal thing. The second one is the podcast. So the podcast was an interesting thing because one of the realizations that I had in back at the start of the pandemic, when I started the podcast with a friend, uh, was like, if we talk about our careers nowadays, like, for example, you and I. Yep. Uh, and everyone is going to have a very different journey of yeah. how they got there, yeah. of what are the lessons learned, what are the mistakes they made yes. throughout their career, right? And this is where I, the more I think about it, 
about the podcast, the more I realized that the value in it is unlocking those insights of what are the biggest lessons learned that would be so key to where you are today that you did not know about or that were not obvious, right? Because there's a lot of podcasts that talk about things like, hey, tell us about how great you are. Yeah, right? like, like, like my, yeah, like my thing, like, like my thing where I just talk about how great I am and then I let you talk about how great you well, are. Well, <laughs> right, yeah, we, we are real great. So yeah, yeah. my dream was on you, yeah. yeah. Uh, but essentially, it's more about figuring out, okay, how do you get those insights that if I put myself in the shoes of somebody early in career, yes. that somebody that was just starting out, I made a lot of mistakes that I wish somebody would tell me mm -hmm. and say, hey, yeah. you should not be thinking about this this way. There's an alternative that's slightly better. Yep. And this is the goal of the podcast is to unlock those so that as people early in career or mid-career progress, they can kind of say, oh, okay, like if I talk to somebody that is as prominent as like Dan Olson in product management, I know how he does things, how he thinks about this topic. If I talk to somebody like, uh, like a web developer, like on Twitter, not Waldorf or uh, Monica Dinculescu, who's a, a fellow Romanian. Uh, she's been at Google. She thinks a lot about like creative aspects of code, right? And putting that out. Like how do those people think about these career problems that we all have? Yes. But it's like, it's kind of locked in this chest of the, the secrets, the career secrets that people keep so tight and they're like, yeah, we're not going to tell anyone. Yeah. Like, it's unlocking those insights is what the podcast is all about. And, and that's, again, I find it fun, not because I want to be the next top podcast, not at all. Yeah. I don't care. Yeah. If I have 10 listeners who find this helpful, that's all, that, that's great. That's fantastic. Yeah. I think one of the things that she said that was very interesting is like learning from mistakes and figuring out like, because everybody's career path is journey. I like to tell people, I, I like this concept of falling face up, right? Yes. And like this concept, like everybody's dropped something and if it's face down, you're like, oh no. But if it's face up, you're like, I can survive, I can survive if it falls face, face up. So it's all about taking every opportunity that you fail at and making a positive out of it. Because yep. every piece of feedback that you get can be constructive, even if it, even if the even if the feedback is I don't interface with that person anymore. Period. Yes. And yes. Yes. A hundred percent. So I think that's that's good. No, that's what I was gonna say. Feedback is a gift. Yes. I've heard that somebody else say, and unfortunately I blank on the name, uh, but this woman mentioned on another podcast that feedback is a gift. Yes. Nobody is obligated to tell you anything, mm -hmm. right? So when somebody tells you how to improve, when somebody spots your mistakes and says, hey, you could have done this slightly differently and you could have had a different outcome, be thankful for that. Yes. And again, this is construct. We're talking about constructive feedback. It's not somebody that says, hey, you suck at your job. Yep. Well, thanks, yep. right? Like, this is great. And what do I do with that? But if somebody actually comes and takes the time and says, the way you spoke in that meeting, made other people feel uncomfortable yes. because they felt they were not heard. This is great. Thank them for that. This is a great opportunity for you to improve because they were not obligated to give you that feedback. They could have sat quiet. You would have made the same mistake in seven other meetings. Yes. People would have hated you and you would be out of your job in a couple of months. It's very, right? true. It's very true. You know, I think we live in a world where people are fed up with people that don't have some form of empathy and, you yes. know, 
as long as you are trying to do the right thing, like, look, we're all human, we're all going to make mistakes, and it's important to realize that your actions have consequences, right, in all in many different forms, whether it's you upset somebody, whether it, you lose your job, whether you lose things that are worse than your job, whatever, right? Every action can has a, neg- a potential negative consequence, even the ones that are 100% golden, right? Uh, I'd imagine that there's been many a times I can I can speak in my life, but in your life, we we're like, this is going to turn out swimmingly. And then you do it and you're like, oh, oh yeah. not so much. Not so much. Um, so uh, we're running out of time. And I, first off, I want to thank you, Den, for hopping on and chatting with me. Of course. Uh, I do know that you are turning it, you're extending your capabilities to another medium. Do you want to talk maybe about the, uh, the paper-based medium that you're do- in the process of working on? The paper-based medium, yes. So uh, I'm writing a book on product management. Uh, and you can go to pmtrack.co. Uh, that is the, the book that I'm writing. You can join the wait list. And basically, it's a brain dump of everything that I know about product management through my career. So don't listen to me as the expert in product management, as the sole expert, because I'm still learning a lot. Uh, but this is just kind of a... a you know, through my uh, years of helping folks early in career understand the product management space, uh, this is more about just kind of sharing my view on kind of the, the the field, what helped me. And again, caveat, it's all through my own lens. Yep. So tweak it, adjust it. Uh, and uh, hopefully in the next year in 2022, first half of the year, I'm releasing that book. It's going to be... Uh, available online it's not going to be print funnily enough so it's going to be a virtual virtual paper paper. medium i guess yeah that's virtual paper that's what i was told about the kindle it's all virtual paper yes yes so it's going to be virtual paper and uh, a video series so if you're bored of uh reading you can always watch some videos of me explaining you and me not necessarily ranting but more of just like talking about these different concepts so hopefully that will be helpful for folks to understand the field and uh, learn as much as I learned. Because again, I'm looking at it from the perspective of, I wanna make sure that folks don't make the same mistakes that I did early in my career and help them grow. That's great. So as we wrap up, thank you again so much, Den, for for hopping on and chatting with me. Uh, I usually ask my guests one last thing before they leave. So if you could think of open source or technology in general, and you had only one word to do it, what word would that be? Collaboration. Collaboration. Perfect. It's always about. It's always about collaboration. People. It's always about collaboration with people. It's not about you know, it's not about fame. It's not about uh, how many GitHub stars you get or how much adoption you get. It's about collaboration. You can collaborate with some wonderful people on some pretty meaningless projects and still make it fun. That's true. That's true. And it's all about the value that you get and the value that you provide. Not not out in the world, but with the people that you're working with, which is super important. And collaboration is right on top of that. So again, Dan, I want to thank you so much. Uh, For everybody around, you can check out den.dev as well as a bunch of links that I put in the Twitch chat. He's pretty pretty everywhere. So I want to thank you again, Dan, for hopping on. And for everybody, enjoy your day and take care. See you next time. Thank you, Isaac.